Hi, it's Tracy Crossley. Welcome to my special series, Surviving to Thriving, Overcoming My Darkest Moment, where I will interview guests on how they felt their way through a major emotional low point to create a fulfilling, abundant, and successful life. Hey there, everybody. We're back once again for another episode of Surviving to Thriving My Darkest Moment. And of course, I have another wonderful guest with me today. Her name is Kelly Miller. Kelly? Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm happy that you're here. And you guys are noticing I'm doing a split screen today, by the way. Usually I have it where it goes back and forth, but we're going to try this out and see how this goes. So let me tell you guys a little bit about Kelly. So Kelly Miller is a psychotherapist, radio host, and author. Kelly's the co-host of the Dr. Deborah and Therapist Kelly Show on LA Talk Radio and is the author of Thriving with ADHD and Professor Kelly's Guide to Finding a Husband. That sounds really interesting, actually. Um, Kelly has been a radio personality for Sirius Radio, co-host of Love and Money, The Advice Show, and was the advice columnist to the largest listserv in the country. Kelly currently works in private practice to individuals and couples and as a group therapist to those struggling with addictions. So, wow, that is quite the resume. So thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. I'm listening to my gardener. I'm thinking, oh, God, he's like, I'm at home. So I apologize (laughs) for the noise. That's life, I guess, right? It is life. You know what? And that's the good thing about these kind of interviews. It's not like they're, um, they're meant to be anything but that. So, you know, if a dog truck pulls up in your front yard, it's, it's okay. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Walking around next. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. The full full Monty. Okay. No problem. So Kelly, you know, to start with, I, I always like to give a little background about what leads up to someone's darkest moment. So, Um, And and sometimes I've also found that some guests have more than one dark moment. So, yeah. So wherever you want to start, please feel free. Okay. So it was funny. I mean, yeah, I was thinking the same thing that I have multiple and, you know, kind of how do you prioritize your darkest moments? But um, I think for me, it was like, it has to be hands down when I went through infertility. Um, So I got pregnant very easily with my first son. Uh, it was the birth that kind of led me on this this crazy journey. Um, decided to go natural. Um, Forty three hours uh, later, still still no baby. They determined he was posterior, so that means like sunny side up. And so I was pushing for a little while. They couldn't. He was stuck up in there. They had to do a emergency C section. And after the C-section, something just wasn't right. I wasn't feeling right. And they determined that um, I was bleeding out. So they had to cut me open again. And yeah, I lost about nine pints of blood. Um, immediately like, had to go in the ICU. Um, it was pretty touch and go. And um, so you know, that, even though that, that sounds like the darkest moment, it actually wasn't that. It probably was that for my husband, but um, it was actually after that where I was trying to get pregnant with my second. And I think that we have this idea in our head that you know, we, we have a plan, and I had a plan. I wanted two kids, a boy and a girl, two and a half years apart. And, um, and so I kind of felt, you know, initially like my world was rocked a little bit. We, we were trying to have a second, and... Um, and it was so incredibly painful. It was that waiting every month 
of just sort of like, is it going to happen? And what if I can? And how do I adjust my my life expectations of, you know, only having one child and, you know, feeling guilty because I already had one child and there are people who don't even have one child. So it was just a lot of emotions and a lot of processing. Um, and then the story kind of <laughs> continues on. And, uh, and so we, we did end up, um, I ended up trying to get surgery because I had a lot of scar tissue. So mm-hmm. I went through four surgeries, one in Los Angeles and three in Boston with specialists who work in this area. And uh, I still couldn't get pregnant. And so they told me that, they, that I could use a surrogate. Um, use my egg because that was still viable, my husband's sperm, but I just wasn't able to carry it. Was this from your first pregnancy? This, the, the whole, all the scar tissue and everything was exactly. you weren't yep. getting pregnant? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not totally sure, but there's a high likelihood that the doctor had like nicked an artery during the C-section. But oh. that's kind of, yeah, propelled into everything. Mm. So after all the surgeries, it was determined, you know, okay, you know, you'll have to use a surrogate. And it was a fascinating and incredible experience. And I had the, the, the best surrogate on the planet. We still keep in touch. But about 13 weeks in, um, she called me and she said, you know, I have a rash and it's, you know, this is rare for me. I'm going to go to the doctor. And she comes back and she says, so I have something called Fitz disease, which is basically, a, it's like a preschooler's kind of virus or disease that they get. But if pregnant women get it, it's especially dangerous because the baby can become anemic. Oh. So what was terrifying was she said, we won't know. We, we don't know. It can't be determined um, for at least 10 weeks, like somewhere in there. So for 10 weeks, and this is really where I think the dark point hit me was that complete powerless of here's someone else carrying my child five hours away I don't even know if this baby's going to make it. I don't know if she's going to call me any day and say, you know what, Kelly, I'm so sorry. Like I had a miscarriage. Um, so it, basically about, mm, it was about eight, about, yeah, about eight weeks later, she called me and said, I went to the doctor and the baby's anemic. So I think we're going to need to get a blood transfusion through the umbilical cord. So I know. <laughs> oh my God. It's a crazy story. It's like insane. So I'm freaking out because it's like, I don't know. I think it's one thing when you can, it's in your own body. You can kind of feel it or you feel like you almost exercise some sort of control. So it was just a completely kind of powerless. I have no control in this situation. So I had her come down. I was, at, I was living in Maryland at the time. I had her come down uh, or come up to, to Maryland to my doctor and they did an ultrasound. They can measure the anemia by an artery in the baby's head. It's kind of amazing. Um, and they determined that, yes, he was anemic, but the doctor said, you know what, let's wait one more week before we do anything drastic. We'll, we can wait and we'll see. And, you know, by the grace of God or whatever, whatever higher power you believe in, a week later, baby was okay. Wow. He, yeah, so he, his anemia had passed. And he did end up, then she ended up having something called a single umbilical artery. Oh my God. You have like no control over any of this either. Nothing. And so then that got me a little bit nervous. You know, and the reason I'm saying this is because I imagine all these people have to deal with similar situations and 
you know, you search the internet and you're like, oh my God, what's a single umbilical artery? You know, how many people can make one it? to go. One yeah. place to go. 100%. Yeah. Um, so long story. And the amazing thing is actually I was thinking today, today is my younger son's sixth birthday. Oh, he's doing really well and he's thriving. And yeah, so that's my dark period where it was extremely difficult, but it's kind of serendipitous that we have this interview today um, on his sixth birthday. I think that's pretty cool, actually. Wow. Wow. So, so let me ask you some questions, though, because, you know, there's always the emotional component, of course, but I'm assuming that your life before this, right? Mm-hmm. That, and, 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 you know, I don't know anything about you, so you'll have to fill me in, but that maybe things were never that out of control or that things had, you know, like you'd never had experiences like that. Maybe you were a person who, you know, was going along and saying, I want to do this and then that would happen, or I want to do that and that would happen. Um, so tell me a little bit about you in that way. Sure. And I, Totally agree. I was always a super hard worker and it was like, you know, you, you, you're responsible for your efforts and not the outcome. And so it's like most of the time when I did something, it, it, it worked out for the most part. And I think with this baby situation, it was like, it didn't matter how hard you tried. It, it, you know, it was like, it was the completely hands down the most powerless experience because you realized it, you know, I, I can only do so much. Um, you know, there was a point in my life too. the, the other side of my, my dark period was I did have an eating disorder. Um, and that once again, I think it was like not having control of my life and trying to force control. Um, and you know, I work with clients now who have eating disorders as well. And it's just this real, this, this recognition that God, my life is really hard. And, and this is the only thing that I can kind of, you know, buckle down and sort of control and, um, so that was sort of, I guess, my way of, of controlling life when it felt out of control at that time. And it was kind of like my early, my early twenties, mm-hmm. but yeah, but beyond that, I guess I felt pretty blessed in the sense that there was nothing, you know, super traumatic or anything like that, that, you know, in my life. And so this was a big shocker. Right. You know, it's interesting is that I think our society plays a lot into the control issues that a lot of us have, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of. We have an idea, you know, when you're a kid of what adult life is supposed to look like. And, you know, you grow up, you go to college, and you have certain pressures, and you don't realize all the emotional stuff that you're going to have to deal with as an adult, you know, because you just have a picture painted for you. And yeah. so, like, when it comes to things like eating disorders or, or anything where you're trying to exert a lot of control, at least, you know, for me, it just seems like, oh, this is a surprise. You know, this is a surprise that there's so much pressure. This is a surprise that I'm trying to control things and they're not going my way. So, you know, like, I don't know, were you in college or something at the time you had your eating? Right after I moved to LA, I was like, uh-huh. I'm dangerous. And uh, yeah, and it was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life and kind of want to be an actress, but I feel this pressure to like get a real job. And um, yeah, and it was like, well, what is the one thing I can control? Oh, my eating, my body image, my weight. Um, you know, it's this illusion. But yeah, exactly what happened. Yeah. I mean, I find that a lot of the people that listen, you know, um, are recovering control freaks. Including <laughs> <laughs> me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the thing with, with that is when, when stuff comes at you that you're not expecting, which, you know, life is always throwing us things anyway. <laughs> But it's, it's the things that really take us down. Like, you know, like if you look at your eating disorder, you know, and of course I'm going back to that because 
that happened first. But when you, when you look at that, it's what things besides, I don't know what I want to do, but what things were going on for you emotionally at that time, you know, that were provoking you to go in the direction of controlling your eating in that way. Yes, it was, it was exactly, it was, it was the fear. It was the self-esteem. It was all of that emotional stuff. And it really, and I think what's so scary about, you know, any addiction is this idea that you really believe like, you know, well, if I can get a handle on this, then everything in my life will be okay. And I just had this illusion. Well, if I can fit into a size zero, then everything's going to be okay. And it's like, you want to almost believe that, you know, or I don't know, whatever illusion you have, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people operate in that way when it comes to life anyways. If this looks good over here, I'm going to be okay. You know, I've had the house, I have the job, I have this, you know, all those kind of things. So in your own life, you know, you said you probably had other dark moments and not that I want to dig every one of them up, but, you know, I know you've written a book about single women, you know, and finding their man and, you know, other things. So was your experience when you were single? Cause I have a lot of single people that do listen to this as well. You know, like, did you have challenges there? Was that easy? Like, please share your experience. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love relationships. I could talk about this for days. Um, yeah. You know, I thought, I think I sought a lot of validation in high school and college from men. And it was like, you know, Oh my God. I didn't love myself enough. So if you love me, then, you know, then, then that will fill this hole that I have. Um, and so I think I operated in that fashion, especially in high school, um, where you just, you know, I, I, and it makes perfect sense. If I have a boyfriend, I will feel loved and I will feel appreciated. And so I kind of had that codependency and sort of hung on to that. Um, and, you know, I, I think I'm grateful that, like, I kind of had those bad relationships that taught me, oh, my God, I, I, I deserve more than this. And... Um, my first kind of true love um, was this guy who was about 11 years older and he treated me so well. And it was such a gift because I then saw, oh my God, like this is, this is how it's supposed to be. Um, wow. What was I doing before? Um, and so it was just kind of this recognition and, you know, obviously that was my first love. It didn't, it didn't pan out, but it, but it gave me that experience of, yeah, this is, this is the way that relationships should be and healthy and treating well. And maybe we weren't completely compatible ultimately, but you know, I, I learned what I needed to in, in that relationship. So for yourself, you know, at that point, then emotionally, what changed for you, you know, besides the experience of him, but what changed inside of you? I think it was, it sounds so cliche, but I think it was learning to, to really love myself because I think that's, that's the goal. If, if we can learn to love ourselves, then of course it's easy to have somebody else love you and to not depend on that. And that if you have a fight, you know, that you still love yourself. So I think that's what kind of shifted for me was that realization, like, you know what, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay here. And um, yeah. And then the breakups of course get you stronger too, because he ended up ending with me and it was like, my life's over. I'm devastated. And, um, but then you realize like, okay, I can come back from that. And uh, you know, and, 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 and having different perspective on it. You know what? We weren't so great in this area. And, you know, maybe for my next relationship, I want that piece, but not this piece and, and that kind of thing. So I think it was just really, you know, gathering all that information and taking it forward. Well, because I think it's interesting what you just said, because I think it probably relates to your darkest moment, you know, in, and that is your emotional resiliency. Yeah. Yes. There's a, a, one of my favorite books is The Blessing of a Skin Knee 
and it's by a rabbi who talks about how kids need that resiliency in order to to sort of make it. And I feel that way too. I think we all need that. We need the, that pain, that that loss, the the grief, the you know, all of that to, to grow and to gain strength and courage and bravery and to recognize, oh my God, if I, wow, that really dark, deep time, I got through it. So you know what, this next one, I can get through it too. So yeah, I mean, when I was thinking about your interview, I was thinking, God, there was nothing I would change about any of, any of my dark times, that it is a blessing hands down. And, you know, that's just my philosophy. And I think it, I think it, you know, helps in those dark times, remembering that of like, yeah, Kelly, this is another spiritual lesson that you can check off. Right. Yeah. And I really believe that myself too, because I don't think you can actually have inner peace without understanding on some level, the experiences you've been through, how you don't have to allow those things to take away your inner peace or develop it in the first place. So, um, and so how has your life changed, you know, since giving birth to you? Yeah. Um, that's <laughs> okay. <laughs> to my next dark period of my life. Um, so both my boys um, are the best. I love my kids to death, but they are extremely challenging. They both have ADHD. Um, and um, my older son has, he is gifted with dyslexia, dysgraphia, um, has some anxiety. My younger one, um, it definitely has ADHD. He's a little bit younger, so we're not quite sure, but that has been extremely challenging. So, you know, you kind of, so here I am sort of imagining, this is what I want, two kids, you know, and then you, then you get two kids and you're like, but wait, I thought it was going to be easy. Like, this is not, you know, the path that I had imagined. Um, so that's kind of been the last, you know, nine years or so of just kind of figuring out, you know, that piece of it of, you know, really loving your kids for who they are and recognizing the challenges and, and kind of accepting that, you know, maybe motherhood isn't sort of what I had imagined. You know, first of all, I, I always thought I'd have a girl too and that we'd be doing like crafts and she'd be like, you know, relaxed at the restaurant. Meanwhile, I have two boys like running around, you know, taking the sugar packets, like having a field day. Um, so it's just, you know, it's kind of accepting, you know, maybe what you didn't, didn't imagine, um, so your life to be. Right. And yeah. Yeah. No, I can understand that. So it's interesting because, you know, in my life, I've applied my own personal experiences to what I do professionally. Mm-hmm. You know, it crosses that, that barrier and it sounds like for you too, because you've written a book about ADHD. Yes. Right? Yes. So, yeah, so basically, I mean, and that that was the beautiful thing is that I saw that kids with ADHD are so creative and so bright and are never dull. And I think that, you know, I think back to, to my days, so I grew up, you know, in the 80s, and they didn't know a whole lot about ADHD. It was just kind of like that kid is lazy or unmotivated. And I remember a teacher taking a kid's desk and literally dumping it and being like, why aren't you organized? You know, and now I look back, I'm like, oh my God, that kid probably had ADHD. And like, you know, and so there was a lot of shame. And I think that I always taught my boys that like, what you have is a gift. And it's gonna, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be difficult in a lot of ways, but it's, it's, it's also a truly a gift. And I see it that way. And I, you know, to the point where my older son would tell people like, I have ADHD, you know, and it was like, 
So, um, so I wanted to write a book so that kids, you know, they're already entering with, with um, you know, this kind of this disadvantage of not being able to be maybe as quick or as organized. And so I wanted them, I wanted to write a book in sort of this encouraging way of, yes, you have this challenge, but let's look at how it can be an asset. And let's look at, you know, how it can help you and how you can better manage. And it's almost like somebody who needs glasses, you know, it's like, you know, you, you can still see, but if you put on the glasses, we can help you see more clearly. And that was kind of the idea of the book of like, let me help you figure out ways for executive functioning and other organizing activities so that you can better help yourself. Right. So this was directed at the kids? Correct. Yes. Okay. Wow. So not the parents. Um, I mean, it's, you know, the parents can help, but it's, yeah. but it's for the kids. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, because I would think that that would help kids in the middle of struggling because usually I'm sure they're getting a lot of feedback from the adults in their life about their problems. So to have a positive spin on it has got to be helpful. I hope so. And it was also, you know, it helped. I wrote an intro to the parents that, you know, being a mom of two with ADHD, it's not easy. I mean, it's really not. And, you know, how to sort of get help for the parents as well, because I think we do need support. Um, and I think when you don't have, when you have kids that are, that are not typical, it is, it's just more challenging and you need more support. And so I kind of wrote a little little piece for them as well. Right. So it's the whole package. Because if, you know, if the parents are struggling, the kids are going to struggle. So we all need to work together. Right. And so, you know, could you share like some kind of, you know, in your own life with that, you know, you're talking mm -hmm. about how they're with the sugar packets and stuff like that. But, you know, like some of the ongoing kinds of challenges and huh. you know, sure. what you do. Yeah. So one of the funniest things is that we got kicked out of IHOP. So that'll kind of give you an idea of, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, I'd bring my kids in and they'd just be screaming at restaurants. And so, yeah, we got kicked out of IHOP. Um, my son, when he was probably, my older one when he was three, I think pulled a fire alarm in a store. Um, yeah, one time he ran out the door when he was, when he just started to walk, he was 18 months, my older one, and he just ran down the street. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just a multitude. I mean, it's like, this is funny because I haven't thought about this in a while, but I mean, oh my, I mean, there, if I could count on my fingers, how many people, how many times people would say to me, I don't know how you do it. Like strangers, you know, like, I don't know how you do it or, or wow, you've got your hands full. Like that's the you know? And it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it's probably a daily occurrence even still. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's just, you're dealing with a lot of energy, a lot of, you know, stimulating minds. I think that, you know, these kids, their minds move so quick, they need to just kind of go with it. And do you um, always feel like you have the patience to deal with it? Oh, God, no. I wish I could tell you I was like this Zen Buddha. But um, I do meditate daily. And I think that that makes a huge difference. Um, I mean, I do it imperfectly, but that helps me and I have to take care of myself. And, you know, I exercise, I vent, I will use humor. I'll joke that I'm selling my kids on Craigslist today. <laughs> um, or, you know, like, oh my God, I'm gonna drive myself to drink here. Like, you know, I, I use a lot of humor to get through it because I think you have to and I'm honest and open. Um, because I noticed that if I'm, if I'm isolated and closed off, it's just going to, I'm going to internalize it. I got to, you know, let people know. And I know I'm not alone. So, 
so that helps too. But yeah, I mean, the patience is is tough because you you want to. I mean, you want to be on all the time, but you know, we're human, and I think that you know, in in that respect. I think it's also good for my kids to see, okay, mom or whomever can lose it, but then she can then go back and repair it. And so I'll say, hey, I'm really sorry. I lost my temper, you know, or something like that. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's good. I think it's good to be human rather than a perfect version or try to be a perfect version because I think that just leads to so many other issues for sure. growing into adults, right? Yes. Um, and so, you know, before I wrap this up, is there anything else that you feel would be you know, great to share with my audience in terms of the things that you've gone through, your emotional resiliency, and how, you know, it's really changed your life. Sure. So I think that, again, like, I think this idea of going through and recognizing, okay, I'm going through this dark time, even if you're in it, or you've gone through it, you know, for some better reason. And, um, you know, regardless of what you believe religiously or spiritually, it's just, I think it's nice to have that in the back pocket of knowing, you know what, there's probably some, some good reason for this happening. I, I don't know the answer. Maybe I'll never know the answer, but it's leading me to a better place. Um, so that, that faith I think is, is key. Um, and then again, like just taking care of yourself during that time, I think kind of our go-to is maybe to isolate or, you know, to not want to see people. And so taking contrary action is huge. Um, you know, going out for a walk, answering the phone when you don't want to, reaching out, any of that, that's so incredibly difficult, but will make such a difference. Um, and if you can't kind of get in your own, if you can't get out of your own head, um, I always say like volunteer or do service or something to kind of get you at, or even, um, you know, praying for somebody else who's going through a difficult situation to sort of, because we have the itty bitty shitty committee that just, you know, is loud and, and doesn't stop. So that kind of helps you get out of your own head. Yeah. I like that. The itty bitty shitty committee. I usually say it's the dickhead in your head, but I, I like love it. it. Either way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Whatever it is that we need to mute or turn down. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So um, if people want to find you, because I have people who listen all over the country, all over the world, um, where is the best place to find you? So my website, which is www.kelly, K-E-L-L-I, Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, therapy.com. And they can find me there and you can contact me and reach out. And yeah, I, I see individuals, I see couples, if you have questions about either book I wrote. I'm super responsive. So I hope to help. Yeah, that's great. And I'm so glad you joined me today. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you so much. I love what you do. Like I said, at the beginning, and I think you're so inspiring and helpful. And you know, it's a gift. It's a gift what you do. So thank you. Thank you. All right. All right, guys. So that is another episode of Surviving to Thriving. Um, I hope you've enjoyed today. And if you have any questions at all, feel free to leave them wherever you see this. Um, you know, if it's on a post, or you can also email podcast at tracycrossley.com with any questions at all for either I or for Kelly. All right. Everybody take care and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.